0: Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is the chief exec of ThinkBox, which is the leading advocate, and we're going to talk about your global role also, Lindsay, but the leading advocate and really the guiding light behind much of commercial television in the UK, and your remit is much broader than that, and Lindsay, you are playing in the center of the hottest space in all of media, so we are thrilled to welcome Lindsay Clay.
1: Well, thank you so much for that. What a lovely intro. I feel very flattered. It's great.
0: There we go. So, Lindsay, I, I want to start by going back to an experience that you had. We're going to challenge your memory a little bit. And I was fascinated to see that your very first gig out of Cambridge, that you ended up in Hong Kong.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: I'd love to go back to that. That's an awfully big challenge for a recent graduate to be setting up a new business in uh, a foreign land, go back to that. Was that uh, something that excited you? uh, Sure. Remembrances from that era?
1: Well, it was, a, it was a very exciting time. It was right at the end of the 80s, and I had just joined a company called Clark Cooper Consulting, which was a sales promotion agency as a fresh-faced, excited, enthusiastic young graduate. And it was the sort of boom time, if you remember, of that great communications surge. I think lots of companies were following the Saatchi model of you know going and uh, rapidly expanding all around the world. And Clark Cooper decided that it was going to do the same and was going to set up up an office in Hong Kong. So, I mean, strictly speaking, I was not the person leading this initiative. I was there as sort of, you know, helper, Jack of All Trades, Jill of All Trades, uh, you know, general supporter. But what an amazing experience it was. I think after about nine months in the business, I went out to, uh, flew out to Hong Kong. And I mean, I had barely traveled at this stage. I had and certainly had never been out to the Far East. So, the whole thing was an enormous culture- shock um every single day a uh, different uh challenging and exciting experience and but I, looking back on it you know what what an amazing thing to get to do i, I think had i known uh, you know had another time i i think i went into it very naively not realizing what it would be like but it was absolutely the making of me it was brilliant
0: and had you traveled before that? Because you are a very young kid at that time.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was probably twenty-two, and I think I'd been to, you know, maybe a couple of European countries. No, I'd, I'd hardly, I'd hardly been out of the UK because, you know, we didn't have, we never went on uh, foreign holidays as kids. You know, we couldn't afford it. So this was, this was a big deal for me.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, you know, it's funny now we travel so much and we take it for granted. But yeah. as young people, I also, I think we went, we went to Disney World in Orlando once. And we went to Aruba. I remember that once when I was about eight years old and that was it. I didn't go anywhere, you know, till much later in life, say, similarly. So dialing back even further, one of the other areas where our paths cross and when we have the opportunity to work with you and colleagues of yours is with Wackle. That's and right. uh, I see that your advocacy for gender equality did not begin in your business life but goes all the way back to the St. B's school uh, where you were the first female head of school and it was mostly a male school. Talk about that. Cause I thought that was a fascinating little tidbit that our great minds crack research team uncovered.
1: Ah, Well, good for them. Uh, yes, I was uh, part of the first cohort of girls in a 400 year old all male boys private school. So imagine, you know, there were uh, Thirteen of us who arrived, aged eleven, in this uh, school of all boys, so we were a huge novelty, um, and uh, it was it was an amazing experience. Looking back on it, I absolutely loved school and I, and I thrived there. But it was somewhat challenging, as you can imagine, because you know trying to find. Um, uh, I suppose a way for us to just be sort of accepted in a normal part of uh, the school's traditions and cultures. Uh, You know, it was um, it was a very sporty school, so the rugby team was everything. You know, I was captain of the hockey team, so I was constantly trying to get equal recognition for our achievements and what we were doing. Um, And it was it felt like a a constant battle. You know, looking back on it, there were some things that were quite grim at the time. I remember, you know all the boys in our classes uh, keeping uh, charts of, you know, when we wore a bra and when all the girls started their periods. And I mean, it was, it was, we were pretty much in the spotlight and some of it was quite sort of toxic and unpleasant, but I think it has made me um, uh, be quite a a tough, resilient character. And it's certainly, I certainly overcome overcame some of those challenges. And so by the time I got to my final year, I was uh, chosen as the first ever uh, female head of school in the school. And w- one of my one of my most um, scary jobs is I had to walk into chapel every morning and there was a complete hubbub of noise and I had to get everybody to be quiet. So you can imagine just the sort of, um, I don't know, tenor of your voice is sort of higher pitched. So it's harder to uh, make that work. So I just used to do it by sort of speaking almost exaggeratedly quietly. And then eventually I got it down pat. And then, you know, I would say, uh, everybody be quiet, please. And then suddenly this hush would go over the, <laughs> over the chapel. So I think I got a very uh, exaggerated view of my own importance and, and power at that time.
0: Well, learning how to command a room at a young age. That's a great exactly. thing. Exactly. So let, let's stay here for a moment because it's such an interesting area. Um, I remember when President Obama got elected here. You know, my wife and I were both in bed late at night, the results had come in and he was going to be the next president. And we were so proud and we both cried a little bit and said, you know, I never thought I'd live to see the day when America would elect a black president. Jumping ahead now, give or take 12, 13 years, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion is very much at the center of the conversation around race, around gender. It seems like certainly in this country, in many ways, we are on an express path going backwards. What are your thoughts, your thoughts, Lindsay? Richard, let's edit that. What are your thoughts going back to that early period and groundbreaking what you did at at school at the St. B's school back all those years ago and where we are today? Have we made progress, Lindsay? Are there areas where you are Shocked by the progress or stunned by the lack of progress?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a it's a great question. I, I think undoubtedly we've made dramatic progress. And you know, I think I think somebody said once, you know, nothing happens, nothing happens, and then everything happens. So I feel like The last couple of years in particular, there's been a real acceleration of uh, the drive towards equality in all sorts of areas. And I think the big change that's happened is people are now taking it seriously as an important topic. So even if they, you know, even if they are resisting and don't like it, it's there in the public debate diversity and inclusion is very firmly on the agenda for all companies for all organizations so it's it's inescapable now i think back in the day it's easy to imagine that with you know the president obama is a great example that you know because the country had elected a black president therefore um you know race equality was going to be sorted but of course it doesn't uh, it takes a lot longer than that. And um, I, I think that issue of when does critical mass happen? And, you know, critical mass, uh, there's an organisation called the 30% Club in the UK, and that is all about making sure that women are represented, that 30% of boards in the UK um, are uh, female. Now you'd think, well, why thirty percent, and why isn't it fifty percent? But the reason for that is because thirty percent is the level at which critical critical mass occurs in a group setting. And once it's thirty percent, then it normalises it. It means that you know, you're not a minority anymore. I think the problem with just being the first, and when there's only one of you. Um, it's hard to make significant change because what you need to do is sort of haul everybody else up, uh, haul the next generation up behind you, you know, put the ladder down and make sure that, you know, they can uh, climb up easily too. And until there are at least 30%, then, you know, that's not going to happen. So I think we're getting to the point now in our industry, in the UK, in advertising, certainly where we are heading towards uh, 30% in leadership roles for women. But we certainly don't have uh equality for people of colour, for instance. And, you know, a lot of the other protected characteristics, you know, whether it's disability, or age, or social background. So, you know, we, we, yes, we've made dramatic progress, but there's an awful long way to go.
0: Yeah, but uh, it's a great narrative as you start to really dig into the Lindsey Clay story here that your roots go all the way back to your teen years here as an advocate. And that, that's an amazing story.
1: Well, I think that's um, I think that's partly from being a, a family of five and having three brothers. So <laughs> I was always negotiating at Christmas to uh, watch The Sound of Music, and they were all voting for James Bond. So you know, I was always being outvoted by my brothers. So I had to learn to negotiate from an early age.
0: There you go. I, I like both. I would have watched either happily. Um, so let's uh, uh, keep jumping forward. And by the way. Uh, um, we just completed the first live advertising week in uh, 25 months here in New York. And I'm proud to tell you, and you played, I think, uh, a role in all this, Lindsay, in a very positive way. We had 54% of all our speakers were female.
1: Wow. Wow. Uh,
0: Wow. Well,
1: you really responded, Matt. I must say that many years ago when I challenged you on this uh, whole, you know, percentage of, uh, or or pointed out the low percentage of female speakers, you were, I think, one of the most responsive people I've ever uh, spoken to on that. You know, I spent my days challenging event organizers and saying look it's just not good enough we need more women on the platform and they would always come back with every excuse under the sun oh but we asked a woman and she said no there aren't any women um we can't find any why can't you help us find them you know all these excuses whereas you immediately just sort of took it on the chin and said right we're going to transform that for next year and sure enough you did so um i will always be grateful to you for no, that no
0: but I, I listen i think i think we would have gotten there uh on our own but you really lit a fire under certainly me i can say in this case and our team is led by uh we are our whole t- global team is female dominated rebecca and ruth and we have you know terrific team sophie and you have got
1: some brilliant women here yeah
0: no we do but um that's been a consistent hallmark And we're really pushing as hard as we can on color as well. That's a little harder, uh, but uh, we're certainly getting there. But I owe you a debt of gratitude also.
1: Oh, stop it. But I I think um, it's interesting, isn't it, the learning about some of those areas. So I think you have to reach down a bit, don't you? And you have to give a platform to people who are maybe not quite as senior as you might want, uh, maybe haven't quite had the experience of speaking in public, but but I think we owe it to them to give them that experience. And if they, you know, if they never get the experience, then you know they can never do it, can they? So um, I, I think that's uh, one of the uh, important responsibilities and also gifts that we can that we can give as event organizers.
0: Yeah, no. Listen, I think it takes a dedicated effort. This stuff doesn't happen by accident, as you know. But if you make a commitment, you focus. What do we need to do to get where we wanna go? And then back into that result, you can get there. So uh, uh, a belated thank you uh, to you all these years later. So you then move on and have a tremendous 15 year run or so at two of the great creative shops that the world has ever produced. One of which the name is gone now, sadly. I'm talking about McCann Erickson uh, initially and then legendary firm, J. Walter Thompson, uh, which I lament that uh, nomenclature is no longer with us. But it right. You up the ladder really quick. Give us your your best of from that McCann or JWT JWT period. Take us any way you like.
1: Well, it was it was um, it was an amazing experience. I, I ended up in advertising. I think I mentioned earlier that I started in sales promotion, and that was almost accidental. I sort of stumbled into the careers department at university looking for an interesting job. I'd done English literature as a as a degree, so it wasn't sort of you know terribly specific. And I got in as a grad trainee to a sales promotion agency. Now, one of the frustrating things about that was that. I was in a client service role, and whenever we would meet with the client, the client would often refer to this thing called the agency, and the agency was never us. It was never the sales promotion agency. It was always some other organisation. And I worked out that okay, well, this advertising agency—they seem to be held in incredibly, in in incredible respect by the client. So gradually, I worked my way around until I um, got a job at McCann, and then I uh, was absolutely part of the agency. And it felt like the whole nature of the conversation was different. You know, it was at a more strategic level. Um, you had much more scope to, uh, I don't know, effect change, whether that's just in the client's business, um, producing communication campaigns that you could feel really proud of, you know, that you could put on telly and that your mum would see. And, uh, you know, she would have some kind of sense of, uh, what I was doing for a career. And so it was, uh, you know, I learned pretty quickly about the incredible power of TV. Um, and, uh, how amazing it is when you are involved in a campaign that really gets under the skin of the population, you know, when they're, when they're singing the theme tune and talking about it in the street and, you know, you mention it to somebody socially and they've definitely seen it and you can just, I think nothing replaces that. And uh, the power of creativity and, you know, the difference that it makes, I think really hit home to me at that point. And I, I've been a huge advocate of the creative side of advertising since those early days. And I think what I also realized was how hard it is. Uh, And I think, you know, sometimes you need to give creative teams a bit of a break because, you know, this is not, it's not, you know, um, a sort of, straight, linear, objective, rational process, there is a magic that happens, you know, when you've got a great brief and you, uh, you know, put your creative mind to work on it. It doesn't always come up with magic, but every so often it does. And that's a very, very uh, special thing. So I think creativity uh, should be nurtured and creative people, you know, with talent should be really looked after and uh, encouraged.
0: And talent became part of your remit at JWT.
1: Yes, it did. Um, I, I made a bit of a um, sort of diversion into talent. At the time, I think I was deputy MD. We had a new chief exec at uh, at JWT, and um, she offered me the role of chief talent officer. And I thought, well, wow, I've always been interested in uh, people's development. This is a fantastic opportunity. It was at the time when I had two young kids, so I was, you know, I think that is remains the most challenging time of a of a mother's career not always of a father's career but um uh, uh. I'm hoping for more equality on that as as time goes on. But it was a very, very difficult time. And I thought this could be the answer to my problems. I will go and be chief talent officer and it'll be interesting and great and more manageable from a work-life balance point of view. But unfortunately, it happened to coincide with um, a time when uh, JWT hit the skids a bit. So business was in trouble. And I think I spent most of the year restructuring and uh, rather than recruiting all this amazing talent into the company, um, I spent the year, you know, supporting restructuring and firing people. And, you know, as any HR person will tell you, that is not a fun place to be. Um, You know, that's not why you you get, you get into the business. So uh, that didn't last terribly long.
0: Hmm. Uh, But that period you start to talk about where we're going to spend a lot of time, which is talking about the power of television, the television landscape when you joined McCann in the early '90s was a little bit different. Uh, and, uh, we've seen certain areas contract, we've seen other areas of the business and genres of the media expand in ways, I think fairly, I think I'm a little bit older than you, but I still remember, you know, when I was a teenager and my little black and white television with a dial, and I think we had a few more channels than you did in the UK, but it was, you could still count them on, you know, basically the fingers on one hand. Um, Are you amazed, again, sort of blending past with present, at how far this whole business and what the definition of television, how expansive it is now, relative to what it was in those early days when you were working on television-related creative at McCann in 1993?
1: Well, it's it's absolutely extraordinary how much it's changed, hasn't it? And, And I have to say, really for the better, Um, certainly from the viewer's point of view. I mean, there's never been a better time to be a viewer of TV because we're absolutely spoiled for choice, aren't we? I mean, you can watch incredibly high quality programming of whatever genre you choose um, anywhere, anywhere you want, at any time you want, on any device you want. And even though some people sort of hark back to the supposed glory days, of TV. I think it was only, uh, there were only glory days because it was very easy from a media point of view. TV was incredibly dominant as a medium. But the, you know, it was, the, there were far fewer channels. It was, um, you know, much more in control. And I think the competition that was brought about by the internet age and suddenly online media becoming a serious uh, you know, competitor and threat has been really good for TV because it has forced it to um, earn its place Um, on top of the tree, um, to uh, really take seriously the um, competitor for time and competitor for, you know, advertising money. And um, it's been hugely beneficial as a result. And that's both in, you know, as far as viewer is concerned, but also for advertisers too. So now, you know, TV has always been brilliant at that amazing, you know, fast reach, big scale, fame driving, emotional brand building uh, campaigns, but now of course it's brilliant at the other end of the uh, purchase funnel. So you know all that sort of you know tightly targeted, data driven, addressable uh, options. It's got you know so many tools now in TV's toolbox. So I, I think you, it's definitely a more competitive landscape now. But I think as a medium, it's it's done at it the power of good.
0: Yeah, no, it's uh, amazing, and we're going to dig in very deeply to a number of the areas that you just reference. But first, let's talk about your journey to ThinkBox. How did it happen? I want to talk about Tess, of course, uh, but you're in the midst of an incredible run there, give or take 15 some odd years. How did you get there initially? Because I don't think I know that.
1: Oh, well, that's a, that's an interesting story. So I had been at JWT and I was coming up for my 10-year anniversary. And I, it sort of, you know, it came as something as of a surprise that I would be at the same company for 10 years and I suddenly thought well actually I don't think this is what I want because you know I always feel that um, if you've been somewhere for a very long time and you haven't had a change you know much of a change then you need to think about uh, both for the company and yourself you know uh, having a change and at the time I got a call from a headhunter about this brand new organization called Thinkbox. Now at the time of course I was working for a creative agency and this was a media trade body and uh, a sort of Nascent one at that. It had only just got going and I hadn't heard of it and I wasn't terribly interested. And they said, oh, but it's run by this woman called Tess Alps. And I thought, aha, now I have heard of Tess Alps. I have never met her, but she has an absolutely amazing reputation. Everybody says she's a completely brilliant person. So at least it's, it would be worth going for the interview. So um, I went along, you know, prepared, uh, went along for the interview, and we got on absolutely like a house on fire. You know, she is, uh, as you know, she's an incredible person. She is, uh, you know, for those who don't know Tess, uh, she was awarded the Macintosh Medal by the Advertising Association for Services to Advertising. She's a person of incredible integrity. She's super smart. She knows everything about uh, media um, and is a brilliant uh, speaker and has uh, amazing personal charm, too. So, you know, we hit it off rather brilliantly. And I think because we're quite... um, in some ways quite opposite to each other. So uh, we have very different Myers-Briggs profiles. She always says uh, she's an introvert. I'm an extrovert. Um, She is... Uh, An intellectual snob. I'm a creative snob. Um, She uh, is very uh, immersed in the business of media. I'm very immersed in the business of uh, creativity. And I think in all sorts of ways uh, we are we are very complementary. And we had uh, however many years it was sort of you know twelve incredible years working together. She was the chief exec, and she gradually uh, I think groomed me to be her successor. So I started off as marketing director um, of this you know brand new organization, and then gradually uh, took over as uh, managing director. And then as Tess started to step back, I stepped up to uh, chief exec. And then I think we finally uh, waved goodbye to her formally last December. But um, so I, I'm incredibly grateful to Tess because I feel like it was such a lucky strike for me, you know, bumping into her at that stage in my career because you know it it really really took off at that at that point. And, and here I still am, you know, very happily, uh, chief executive box
0: Amazing story. Let's talk about Tess a little bit more because she is such an extraordinary character in our industry and so respected, so beloved. Um, she took you under your, obviously took you under her wing and saw something special in you. Tell us some of the special things that you saw in her.
1: Well, I think, um, I, again, I think this is a bit of a pattern, me sort of, you know, setting off into new roles slightly naively. I don't think I realized what, uh, how, that really Thinkbox was a media role. I thought, well, it's about TV advertising and I, I know an awful lot about that. But really the nuances of media are, you know, it's, it's very sophisticated, it's very complicated. And Tess of course, had worked on the sell side of TV, and then on the planning and buying side of TV at a very fine media agency called uh, PhD. And so she knew there was nothing about it that she didn't, you know, uh, that she didn't know about. And she knew everybody as well. So she could, um, you know, when if ever I had a question about anything, you know, she would always have the answer to it. But I, I learned so many different things from Tess. I remember when I first arrived at Thinkbox. And uh, twice a week, she would sort of get up out out of her uh, chair at about 1230. And then apparently just disappear for about two and a half hours. And I would say, well, you know, well, where is she? What is she doing? And somebody said, oh, she's at lunch. And I was thinking, what a massive waste of time. What is she doing? Spending two and a half hours each day at lunch. But of course, Tess taught me the power of relationship building and lunches and how you can get to a completely different, if you spend two hours having lunch with somebody or, you know, having any kind of a meal or an evening with somebody, you get to a different place in your relationship. You accelerate it, you fast track it in a way that you just that just wouldn't happen if you had a sort of a telephone call or a meeting. And gradually then uh, she sort of like, you know, embraced me under her wing and we started lunching together and then realized that we're also very uh, complementary from a social point of view. So I'm a huge extrovert. I love the networking part at the beginning of a party. She hates that and will only rock up you know two minutes before the dinner starts so we we you know we play, played this role of a sort of um a tag team in uh in social terms but i also learned i mean so much from her the way um her speaking um ability and you know her sort of oratory power is absolutely amazing anybody that's heard her speak will see that. And also her, um, you know, her responses off the cuff to, you know, questions and challenges, you know, she's really, really tough. And I think she did this brilliant thing, whereby she would, uh, one of the things that we need to do at Thinkbox is we have a zero tolerance policy to myths and inaccuracies um, that people might uh, say about TV. And so, you know, if it's factually incorrect, then we will absolutely go for it to make sure that, um, you know, uh, people don't people don't just uh, talk rubbish about TV. And quite often at the time, there was a whole thing about, you know, T- that TV was dead and people were constantly criticising it and undermining it. And uh, Tess used to do this thing whereby if somebody said something stupid about TV in public, she would absolutely exorcet them. And she would sort of in intellectually uh- uh, challenge them, and undermine them in public in, in a way that was just, you know, you sort of it slightly made you go, ouch, because it was <laughs> very humiliating for the person. But then um, she would turn around and then suddenly make them her best friend. So she would then, uh, you know, somehow she would manage to uh, steer her way through, end up with a uh, relationship with them, and then they would be a convert to the um, power of TV. So I don't know how she managed to do it, but, you know, from, um, you know, uh, disagreeing and a time of incredible conflict, she she would somehow turn them into her biggest fan. So um, I don't think I've quite uh, mastered that ability yet, but it's certainly a, a lifelong challenge.
0: Well, the trait that you both have, uh, which is in such short supply in our industry is charismatic leadership. And though your personalities are very different, as you referenced, um, you both have that ability and people want to follow Tess and they want to follow you. Um, So whether you had that before or it was nurtured and grown during your time with Tass at ThinkBox, that's uh, a characteristic that we need in much greater supply in our industry. But both of you have it.
1: Oh, that's very kind. Thank you, Matt.
0: Absolutely true. So let's really start to dig into uh, the world of commercial television. When you joined uh, ThinkBox, it was right around the same time as YouTube was born The iPhone was about a year or so before that. Um, And the whole birth of technology that has enabled such incredible transformation in our industry. And I agree with you, by the way. I think as a consumer, it's never been a better time for television. Um, But the landscape was a little bit different then. What were some of those early agenda items going back to, you know, the beginning of your tenure, I guess, 2007, 2008, 2009, somewhere and then, because I'm gonna guess the things on top of your agenda then at ThinkBox were a little bit different than what they are today in 2021.
1: Well, it's so interesting to look back because if you look at um, even just the strategy that we formed for, you know, what is TV? If we're supposed to be promoting and supporting TV, well, what is it? And largely at the time, I mean, linear TV was absolutely overwhelmingly dominant. You know, there was a little bit of, um, you know, newer forms of TV, uh, you know, video on demand emerging. Uh, And there was a serious discussion at the time about, well, really, we just need to support linear, don't we? Um, But uh, I think we made the brilliant decision that um, we would define TV as the content the you know high quality professionally made uh, advertising supported content um and not uh, the device or the delivery platform uh so it was about the content regardless of what device it was watched on um and what uh what platform delivered it and and i think that turned out to be an absolute masterstroke because of course that has been um you know it's categorically the future of tv you know at some point all of TV will, will you know, uh, move from broadcast, linear broadcast technology to being uh, delivered via IP, via the Internet. And so, and, you know, and, you know, much more of uh, viewing will gradually shift into on demand. So, you know, thank goodness we did that at the time and always embraced all of TV. Um, so, but you know, it was hard, hard to imagine that it was going to change uh, as much as it uh, subsequently did. There were all sorts of challenges in the early days. So um, I remember we did some research in the early days to look at, well, what are the, what are the challenges in TV? So yes, there was this whole narrative about, you know, TV being dead or dying. And I mean, it was plainly ridiculous. TV wasn't even sick, but because, you know, certain of the, um, of uh, the sort of um, tech community had decided that it served their purposes to, um, you know, support that narrative, and nobody really had been challenging it. So there was a really important role for us to do, to just say, hang on a minute, look, here are the facts. Of course, it's not dead. It's not even sick. It's in, you know, it's in absolutely rude health. Tess at the time came up with this idea that, you know, um, uh, TV isn't uh, TV isn't dying, it's having babies. <laughs> so, you know, it's a sort of, you know, image, a metaphor all about sort of, you know, fertility and growth rather than of uh, uh, death and destruction. So we had to do that. Uh, and we did some research which looked at the attitude uh to our medium amongst planners in media agencies and they were the single, they're, so they're the group who recommend how your media budget is spent. So they recommend to clients how to allocate the media budget and they were the single group who had the worst attitude to TV. And part of the reason for that was they didn't see it as a, as a creative medium. It was just, well, it's you know 400 TVRs on a spreadsheet, job done, right now let's look at you know where are the creative opportunities for us. So there was a real urgent need to get TV planners to get planners to think differently about TV, to see it as being, you know, a canvas for their creativity, for being a flexible medium that could deliver, you know, all sorts of different things for their clients. And so, um, you know, we started um, honing case studies. We developed uh, an award scheme to acknowledge the amazing work that planners do in putting together, you know, it's, it's a weird sort of half, creative half scientific job that they do in putting you know amazing campaigns together uh, and and that actually you know that that uh, work to treat and and trying to make you know trying to uh, put some oxygen behind the amazing work that this important uh, group were doing, and you know gradually over time that that uh, has worked really well and but,
0: oh, sorry God. For, no, please
1: and now I, I was just uh, saying and the um uh, the the technological changes uh as well so if you look at how much tv has changed now and you know what you can, you know what you can do with TV now that, um, you know you you couldn't back then. You know back then it was a, you know a fantastically powerful but relatively blunt instrument. Now I think there are so many different sophisticated uses of TV, and and what is particularly pleasing I think is that if you think about now, uh, we talk of it in terms of the renaissance of TV. You know there's this amazing. Um, you know sort of uh, series of factors happening at the same time, which means that you know there's a huge surge of revenue coming into TV advertising. and partly what is I mean there's a whole number of different things that are fueling that, but partly it's a sort of general uh, reevaluation by the whole industry about what TV is. Uh, you know it's not just about uh, driving fame although it does that brilliantly it's also got you know all these um sophisticated tools that i mentioned um it's it's about uh, the renaissance is about rediscovery by tv's biggest customers so you know the really big companies are now um you know if you look at how much they're spending now relative to how much they're spe- they spent in 2019 pre pandemic um that's really exploded and then uh, the biggest and most exciting of all is how much what we call the uh, online born brands have embraced TV. So these are the businesses which uh, have only ever existed on the internet. Uh, They're generally run by incredibly growth-hungry, ambitious uh, tech entrepreneurs, and they are the ones um, who are really embracing TV. So, and these incredible disruptive brands in practically every sector now that you could imagine, whether it's, I don't know, food home delivery or mattresses or or second-hand car sales or, you know, travel, whatever it might be, every sector has been disrupted by these brands and they are absolutely going gangbusters for TV. So actually this will, you know, if not the best year ever for TV advertising revenue uh, this year is certainly going to be very close to it.
0: Amazing story. Lindsay, well, are there certain watershed moments that we can look at in the last, let's narrow it down to the last decade or so, uh, where all of a sudden you saw something, because I know Thinkbox, you do, you're do. you a real think tank. Uh, are there certain trends, pieces of research, a particular innovation that, okay, now that rock is really going to start, depending on your perspective, going down the mountain faster or gonna, we're going to be able to push it up the mountain much faster than we thought?
1: I think um, we have... Really, we sort of pride ourselves on our commitment to, um, you know, high quality, rigorous research at Thinkbox. So rather than just, you know, it being about our opinion, it's, it's about, you know, well, let's get the data and demonstrate that. Uh, and I think one of the really seminal pieces that we uh, produced was a study called Profitability, the business case for advertising. And it was a really large scale uh, econometric study uh, done in partnership with uh, Ubiquity and Game Theory. And so what we wanted to do was look at, really make the business case for all of advertising and then look at what is the role of TV um, within that And so, um, you know, this it took it took a huge amount of time, but it turned out to be a really sort of you know seminal piece for the whole industry. And one of the things it demonstrated was that TV generates seventy one percent of all the profit generated by advertising, at only fifty five percent of the spend. So I think once you started to get results on that kind of scale, it's just inarguable, you know, when you, you know, really, really uh, big numbers, uh, highly respected advertisers, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different advertising campaigns and, you know, millions and millions of pounds of spend, then, um, you know, you get the empirical evidence that actually um, is, it starts to be inarguable. Um, And I, I can, I can really see that as a, you know, as a fantastic, I suppose staging post on the journey for TV, but then also, you know, as every year goes by the, uh, the need is slightly different. So, you know, just recently we did a fantastic piece of research called signaling success. What we wanted to do was try and quantify the, the as seen on TV effect. So we know that, um, you know, there's something um, being on TV does something special uh, for brands, so how do how do viewers react to a campaign that they see on TV relative to, say, a campaign on social media? What is the effect of the context um, of the of the medium? And that was um, that was a, a brilliant piece of research, which uh, won gold at the recent Media Week uh, Awards for best trade body research. So we're very very proud of that. But it just demonstrates that. Consumers, there is a special halo effect when they see something on TV. They're inclined to trust it, to believe it, to see that it's more, um, you know, to project, uh, you know, uh, sort of characteristics of sort of quality and trust and stature onto it just because of the medium that they uh, consume it on. So, you know, I and there's always plenty more to do because as soon as um, as soon as a study is launched, you know, it almost becomes out of date within a bit within. about six months so you know this, there's always there's always more to do. but um, yeah uh, yeah and, and we're just about we're launching next week in fact uh, in November uh, a new piece of research all about how these e-commerce brands are really embracing TV and what others can learn from it.
0: Fantastic stuff. So let's dig a little bit more here. One of the things that brought us to the UK almost 10 years ago was uh, extraordinary, sort of deeply baked in leadership in creative industry globally. And that's also been joined in the last decade or so by incredible innovation on the technology front. I know that was at the root of the Comcast NBCU acquisition of Sky was they wanted their technology. Talk about ThinkBox's role in sort of helping the commercial television world navigate that And what is it about what's happening in your relatively modest sized country uh, that allows you to punch way above your weight globally in the business of television?
1: Well, yeah, that's a very interesting question, I think. What is it about the UK? Because, you know, it's a small country, but there is a very specific ecosystem here. Um, There's been quite a lot of consolidation in the TV market. So if you think now, there are really three significant sales houses for TV. So with ITV, with uh, Sky Media and Channel 4, you know between them, they control something like you know, 98% of all the revenue coming into TV. And because they sit together around the Thinkbox table, it does create... Um, you know, it's part of the spirit of collaboration between them. You know, they use the salespeople are used to dealing with each other. They see each other as, as sort of colleagues as well as competitors. Now, Thinkbox isn't the only place where they collaborate because they collaborate you know, you will have seen the chief execs of uh, the major broadcasters sitting together on a panel at COP26 just recently. You know, talking about their uh, joint initiatives that they're launching on sustainability. But I think there is there is definitely a spirit of uh, collaboration. So um, I think Sky has been an amazing organisation at uh, you know being a real leader in tech. And in many ways that has sort of um, driven the pace for a lot of the rest of the industry. So, you know, because they are uh, a subscription and platform company as well as a broadcaster, um, it's enabled them to, you know, really excel at things like at uh, developing things like uh, addressability at a household level um, uh, on on your TV set, and I think that has sort of, you know, uh, you know, driven the pace of the rest of the market. But if you look at those three main players, each of them have got something that they, you know, particularly excel at. So they're sort of you know uh, friendly competitors all the time and you know collaborating on something so um, you know sky have got you know uh, addressability at a household level plus you know all sorts of other stuff as well ITV have got their you know planet V platform which is going to be uh, which is now uh, emerging as a fantastic platform for delivery of um, uh, vod advertising and uh, you know uh, uh, programmatic advertising and you know self serve uh, platform ultimately as well and they, they want to open it up to uh, other broadcasters too um, and Channel four have always prided themselves because. They have uh, really focused on the younger audience, the 16 to thirty four audience, that they have been the you know the trailblazers in making their uh, content and programming available on demand, and they have made big commitments to you know digital first and being sort of you know very rapidly uh, moving uh, more of their uh, effort into the digital space. So I think there is um, there is a particularly Um, productive ecosystem here. There's a manageable uh, number of companies. Um, They can both compete uh, and collaborate across the piece. And, And I think it does make for a, you know, pretty, pretty fertile environment.
0: Yeah. And outside influence globally. And I think with you, certainly, I don't think it's an accident that you were the president of the global TV group, uniting the think boxes of the world for several years. Talk about the evolution of that group, because that's very interesting and you've played a key leadership role there as well.
1: Yeah, and I must give credit as well to uh, EGTA and Cathy Roberfoy, who's the president of uh, EGTA, which is the European uh, trade body, because uh, they were really important, uh, significant role in putting together the global TV group. But it's very interesting that TV is an incredibly dominant medium in uh, almost every market around the world. But it's a very local medium. So the biggest TV brands tend to be local companies. So if you then um, compare it with TV's competitors, TV's really big competitors are enormous global tech platforms. So if you look at Google and Facebook um, and you know several others too, they are those tech platforms, operate on a global basis, and they reflect the structure of global advertisers. So already, there's an obstacle to TV being able to compete on a global scale, because they just don't have the same connections, you know, they're held at an individual country by country level. And very quickly, a number of years ago, we identified this as one of the constraints for TV. So for example, if um, you know, in the UK at, at Thinkbox, we have you know, this policy of um uh zero tolerance for myths and inaccuracies, you know, printed or spoken about TV. But what happens if that you know myth or inaccuracy is spouted by somebody in the US at a, you know, at a conference there? what do we do about that? We don't have the evidence to disprove it. We don't have the platform to disprove it. So very quickly, we realized that we needed to have a connection um, with all the organizations like us around the world. So we started reaching out to them and, uh, you know, making connections and comparing notes. And, you know, amazingly, well, I suppose it wasn't amazingly, uh, unsurprisingly, all the challenges were exactly the same. So, you know, they were dealing with the same issues, they were fighting the same battles. And so we had so much uh, more in common uh, than uh, apart. So the only exceptions, I think, were where in some markets there had emerged two two trade bodies, where one would be maybe for pay TV and one would be for free TV. And often, if that was the case, they would spend all their time attacking each other, which is extremely unproductive. So anyway, we uh, got together with all these uh, people. We uh, collaborated. Eventually, we held a meeting and we still, um, it's a... We we look on it as a sort of a coalition of the willing. We don't put, we haven't got a significant central budget. We are there to help and support each other. It runs on uh, goodwill. And personal connection, and actually, you know, we've managed to achieve quite a lot. We've, uh, you know, we've had a number of campaigns around uh, special days for TV when the Olympics is on. Uh, we've had campaigns around young pe- people's uh, behaviour and young people's viewing, the rise of e-commerce, and uh, you know, uh, D2C brands. And then we've managed to put together uh, what we call the, the global TV deck of charts. So the kind of, you know, the nickable charts that we have at Thinkbox are now also available on a global level, thanks to our uh, brilliant colleagues around the world. So it's been a very, very um, pleasurable experience, uh, getting to know all those people and, you know, sharing and collaborating with them.
0: Fantastic. So looking ahead, as we start to wrap up, uh, what's on your priority list and top of your agenda for 2022?
1: well for from a think box point of view uh, one of the things we're really going to be focusing on is our TV masters training program so we identified uh, a couple of years ago that again one of the barriers to TV was the fact that young people coming into the industry didn't have the same relationship with TV as their predecessors so they would often be you know as, as we know young people's behavior they you know, they wouldn't watch as much linear TV, they'd probably watch more on demand. And then also as professionals in the industry, they wouldn't, within two years of working in the business, have worked necessarily on a major TV campaign, because they might be working on, I don't know, paid search, or in, you know, social media, or, you know, some other uh, aspect of media. So there's a real training gap um, in TV. So uh, we spent 2020 in, uh, you know, during the pandemic, developing a fantastic video-based online training program for TV called TV Masters. It's about 12 hours of training. It's absolutely brilliant. It's completely free to everybody. And we launched that in October 2020. Uh, So since then, we have had, I think we had our 10,000th registration just recently. We've delivered 35,000 hours of training uh, since it launched just a year ago and uh we're most proud of all we've get we get something like a nine percent net promoter score. So if you do the training, you will absolutely evangelize about it and say, say that it's brilliant. So um, we're really pleased with that. We've got all sorts of ambitious plans for that. We're going to uh, expand it uh, even more if that's if that were possible. Um, so that's one of the things that we've got on the agenda. Uh, then continuing to capitalize on the e-commerce boom in TV. Um, and, and I think uh, a big theme for next year is what we're calling TV superpowers. So, just getting back to the heart of what is so brilliant about TV, you know, it is a very, very special and powerful medium. And actually, uh, talking proudly about TV superpowers is certainly going to be uh, taking up a lot of my time for next year.
0: Absolutely fantastic. Well, there are many people with passion, there are many people who have a resume of accomplishment. There are not so many who have both. <phone rings> And you have both. And to hear you talk about what you do, one would think that you were at the very beginning of your tenure there, uh, not 15 years in. So that that sustained, I would say, even growing passion and enthusiasm for what you do is absolutely inspiring, Lindsay. And uh, I can't thank you enough for doing this. This was an absolute joy.
1: Well, it's an absolute uh, pleasure for me too and a privilege. So thank you so much, Matt.
0: All right. Stay well. We'll see you soon.